Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Stefano Marcuzzi, the Max Weber Fellow at the European University Institute. And today we are discussing his book, Britain and Italy in the Era of the Great War, Defending and Forging Empires, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dr. Marcuzzi. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. Doctor, uh, why did you write this book? Um, (laughs) Well, um, I would say for a couple of reasons, uh, mainly. Um, You know, one of my uh, interests uh, in terms of research is on uh, coalition uh, warfare. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the ways uh, alliances and coalitions uh, function in war. Uh, that means under the pressure of um, unpredictable war um, events. And uh, if you look, for example, at the Triple Entente, which is an obvious case in point, um, uh, what is quite striking, if you if you look at that alliance, we call it an alliance, but in fact it does have no um, uh, characteristic of what we tend to consider an alliance today. Um, they had no unified command, uh, like NATO has today, for example. They had no unified uh, diplomacy, um, no unified economic institutions, uh, like the European Union, for example. Uh, now, they acquired, they, they established some, some of those things as the war progressed, but only very late in the war. Uh, but essentially, what they, they were uh, was a, a, an ad hoc fighting group with countries opting in and opting out. And the reason why this is important is that uh, because of this, um, those countries that joined the Allies uh, tended to create uh, uh, preferential partnerships um, with uh, one or more countries in, uh, in, in, that, in that group, uh, depending on you know, the circumstances. Uh, you, you tend to create a better partnership with a country that is either more similar to you or um, that is less uh, you know, problematic in terms of public opinion and, uh, and so on, uh, your favorite commercial partner. So, so you know, it, the reason why this happened can be, uh, can be of course, uh, can vary. But um, the fact that these countries uh, operated in that way uh, made, made me ask myself, uh, how about Italy? Because we had studies about the uh, Anglo-French um, uh, cooperation, the, the Anglo-French partnership, about the Anglo-American partnership, about the Anglo-Russian partnership, about the Austro-German partnership, the German-Turkish partnerships, uh, but nothing on Italy. And so I, I, w- I was wondering, uh, did Italy operate the same way? I digged into that uh, question and I find out, found out that actually, yes, Italy did operate in the very same way, and it picked up uh, Britain as its preferential partner. Um, and then I should probably add a second reason for writing the book, which is, you know, quite frankly, um, 
you know, career timeline because the, the topic was the topic of my PhD um, uh, research. Um, and uh, essentially, when you do it, you take a PhD. Uh, if you want to stay in the academia, the first thing you try to do is to turn that PhD thesis into a book. So that's, you know, that's another reason. And what can, if you could put it in, in a concise manner, what is the book's uh, thesis? So, yeah, the, the, the thesis flows precisely from the, the, the point that I mentioned earlier on. So uh, the importance of the, of the bilateral um, relationship between Great Britain and Italy to, under, to better understand their behavior, uh, both within the Entente and, uh, and uh, in, in the war management more, more broadly. So how that bilateral relationship shaped the war strategies uh, and and the ex the war experience uh, of 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 the two countries, uh, and in this regard, I made three conclusions in my book. The first one is that um, the two countries had uh, opposing war aims, despite uh, despite initially they thought the opposite, and this is quite interesting. Uh, the impact of war developments on 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 shaping uh, the the war aims of of two competing of two um, uh, belligerent countries. Uh, so, number one, they had uh, different war aims, uh, and uh, number two, they had different war strategies, and number three, they had uh, different approaches to peacemaking. And the reason why the, 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 the final outcome of, of the uh, bilateral relationship, which, which was conceived as a special one, especially in Italian eyes, uh, turned out to be uh, very, a, a very negative um, uh, thing, um, can be understood precisely by looking at the, these three issues that hampered the cooperation between the two countries um, throughout the war and the peace conference. Uh, how do you approach a rather common Anglophone scholarship? I'm thinking in particular of Alan Taylor, Dennis Mack Smith, and Richard Bosworth, uh, among others, which regards Italy's short period as a great power as some sort of malignant joke. Uh, yes, that's uh, that's a traditional, uh, a traditional, well-established uh, view, and uh, I should probably say maybe that another reason for writing the book now that that you raise this issue uh, is that I try to kind of, um, uh, y y y you know, um, uh, redress the balance a little bit, uh, in the sense that uh, certainly Italy was um, not so much ridiculed; um, it was much more ridiculed for its participation and performance in the Second World War, but certainly was uh, evaluated in in, in a uh, prevailing, uh, essentially in a negative way, or at, at least at least was not considered a, a fully functional uh, great power, and uh, its performance and contribution to the final victory was uh, generally downplayed. Um, and, and essentially, as you say, you know, it was considered a country, a Machiavellian uh, actor that is shifted aside according to circumstances that wanted to be on the winning side and yet was not even, you know, kind of worth it after, uh, after all because it's, it was militarily incompetent. So um, part of that, I think, is justified uh, in the sense that uh, certainly Italy was not a great power by the standard uh, of, of the time, it was certainly not uh, uh, like France or Germany, um, but um, you know the the prevailing view that the Italian contribution was um, was minimal. Uh, I think it needs to be redressed, and and also the way Italy behaved diplomatically 
it was, number one, not peculiarly Italian, uh, because if you call Italy Machiavellian, then you should, you should say the same thing to, you know, Japan, Bulgaria, Romania, essentially all the other countries that joined the war, except the United States, maybe. Uh, but all the other countries that joined the war as a consequence of um, uh, negotiations, uh, essentially, you could, you could call them uh, Machiavellian. And, and especially, you know, the Romanians, they also shifted their pre-war alliance. So Italy was not unique in that either. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but, but, the, but the other reason is that uh, the, the traditional Anglo-Saxon uh, interpretation um, didn't take into consideration the fact that um, Italy was not volunteering to join the Allies. Italy was being invited and was being in some ways even blackmailed uh, by the British. Uh, so uh, definitely Italy had its appetites. Uh, it was an aspiring great power. It, it, uh, it exploited the circumstances. It was very pragmatic. But uh, the situation was much more complex than that. And in fact, one might argue that the economic situation of Italy by the winter 1914-1915 made war inevitable. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, the, uh, the action, the, the unilateral action of Great Britain in, in, in forcing the hand of Italy, in forcing Italy out of its neutrality, has been traditionally ignored, but played a major role in the final decision to join the Allies. Uh, insofar as your book has a revisionist uh, aspect in terms of uh, the evaluation of Italian military performance in the Great War, were you influenced at all by John Gucci's book on the subject? Yes. Um, uh, John is one of the few who was my um, external examiner, uh, by the way, in, uh, in, in Oxford. Uh, you know, th there is a broader discussion that we should probably make here in the sense that, um, you know, John, uh, just like Richard Bosworth, um, now Vanda Wilcox, there are a few good scholars um, that uh, approached the uh, the study of, of, of Italian matters um, by uh, assessing the Italian original sources, um, and, uh, and 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 that that's important because uh, a lot of other other, other um, scholars who wrote about Italy in the First World War, or in fact in the Second World War, uh, you know John Keegan, just to mention one, you know, so first class historians, um, uh, they did so, they wrote about Italy. Uh, without having accessed uh, the Italian original sources, uh, without having the either the language skills or the capacity to actually go into the archives and, and look at the original material. Now, uh, that is, of course, a problem, because by doing by doing so, of course, John Keegan, for example, made, uh, you know, incredibly wrong assessments. You know? <laughs> um, but I should also say that one of the reasons why this happened uh, is, is actually a responsibility that should be uh, given to the Italian historiography. Uh, the lack of engagement on the part of the Italian historiography in the last uh, more than half century, actually, uh, since the end of the Second World War, one may say, um, played a major role in that. It was a narrow-mindedness on the part of the Italian historiography, which tended to uh, essentially engage with the Italian public only. This was partly perhaps a consequence of the parochial attitude that uh, the, the part of the Italian elite had towards foreign policy, you know, uh, which is uh, sometimes considered as a, essentially an instrumental tool to be used in domestic politics. Some might say that 
Italy still has this problem today. Uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, intellectually speaking, uh, I think the Italian historiography in the past 50, 60 years um, simply did not engage enough with international scholarship uh, and, uh, and did not produce books that could be uh, you know, books in English, for example, you know, uh, very, very simply. Uh, and, 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 and because of that, you know, uh, I also try to put myself into the shoes of, of, of an English scholar who uh, has to write about Italy, finds Italy as, you know, a topic in, you know, First or Second World War matters. And, uh, and of course, you know, you're an, an English native speaker. First of all, you, you have a lot of material in English already, uh, uh, British and American material, um, to deal with. And secondly, if you go for a second language, you maybe go for German. Uh, and then maybe you go for French if you can do it. Uh, and, and then maybe you kind of go for Russian or Italian. So for an English speaker, an English native speaker, scholar, um, uh, you know, it, Italian will never be a priority unless you are an Italianist. Um, because your assessment is, rightly so, that other countries played uh, greater roles in those conflicts. So you first go for the other languages, but, but then you still write about Italy, you know, uh, and, and that's the vicious circle. Whereas for the Italians, English should have been the priority as a, a foreign language. So I think the responsibility is, has to be put uh, on, on both sides. How would you characterize relations between the two powers in the period running from 1860 to 1900? Uh, you mean Britain and Italy? Yes. Yes, so uh, that's quite interesting because uh, from the Italian perspective, um, that was an extraordinary uh, relationship. It was a fantastic relationship. Uh, they saw the British as their, the, the, the main supporter of the process of Ut Italian um, reunification. Italy got unified in, in 1861 and did so uh, thanks to British diplomatic backing and also financial um, support, not only in the sense that the British government um, gave uh, financial aid to the government of uh, Sardinia Piedmont, which was the kingdom that unified Italy, uh, but in the sense that many British donors played a major role in, in supplying Italian patriots and, and the, the, the Italian unification movement, or movements, plural, um, with, with the financial, financial um, uh, aid. Uh, and uh, and also um, and also the Italians had a cultural um, sort of uh, linkage with the British, um, whom they saw as the modern version of the Roman Empire, uh, and the British saw themselves in you know under the same light. Uh, so uh, this this historical um, uh, aspect was important. The cultural aspect was also important, and then there was a geopolitical aspect, which from the Italian side. Um, uh, played an important role. You know, Britain was the only country uh, with which uh, Italy had never clashed um, because one may say France played a major role in the Second War of Independence, the Second Italian War of Independence in 1859, true, but then uh, Italy fell out with France when Napoleon III, who was leading that campaign, refused to uh, continue the war and, and signed an armistice with the Austrians. Uh, and the war ended up with uh, um, without the, the 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 annexation of Venice to Italy. Then, in order to get Venice, the Italians allied themselves with the Prussians, who were also trying to unify the German states in Central Europe. Um, and that alliance did, in fact, bring about the annexation of Venice, but did not deliver a final blow to the Austrians, who remained a traditional enemy of Italy. 
And actually, actually, Berlin and Vienna became allies. And so uh, the relationship with, with, with the Germans and the Austrians remained ambivalent on, 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 uh, on, the, on the Italian side. Uh, competition with France remained very high, and competition with Russia increased over the years, both in the Balkans and in the Eastern Mediterranean. And now who was left? Britain. So, you know, uh, Britain was the main commercial partner and uh, the geopolitical actor, which uh, uh, Italy saw as closer to itself, uh, especially because the Italian colonial ambitions had not manifested themselves to the level, to the degree that would, um, in fact, be seen uh, as a threat by the British, which happened throughout the First World War. But up until that moment, Britain and Italy were actually very good friends. Now, the interesting thing is that whereas the Italians thought this to be the basis for a very good, you know, uh, and lasting alliance, you know, a, a formal alliance, and tried several times to, you know, to, to bring that about, uh, the British didn't, didn't quite share that view. I mean, they were very happy to have the Italians uh, on, on their side in, in, in the sense that they considered Italy an important, you know, geostrategic player in the center of the Mediterranean. They, uh, of course, were happy to, to have commercial ties with Italy. But, uh, first of all, they didn't feel as the Italians felt that uh, they needed Italy militarily. And secondly, they thought that a formal alliance with the Italians might cause the British some troubles because if the Italians uh, ended up in a war against Austria or France or both or, or any, any other great power, um, the British were almost certain that the Italians would, you know, appeal for help. Uh, and the British didn't want to get involved into any of this uh, until the outbreak of the First World War. So we have a asymmetrical alliance here, sorry, asymmetrical relationship here. The Italians wanted an alliance, the British were not quite happy, and so they remained friends, but not allies. Did not the Franco-Italian rapprochement at the beginning of the 20th century make one between Britain and Italy inevitable? Um, some said so uh, at Whitehall. Uh, some considered, uh, in fact, the uh, rapprochement of the uh, French and the Italians as uh, a good thing that brought Italy closer to the Entente, um, especially uh, as, as, as Italy was constantly having troubles with uh, its Austrian allies, because, of course, by that moment, uh, Italy was uh, formally in an alliance with central powers. So uh, upon German invitation, uh, was a member of the Triple Alliance. So Germany, Austria-Hungary, and, and, and Italy, in fact. Um, but the very, the, the very reason um, uh, that, that Italy was uh, part of the opposing bloc uh, also caused some troubles, some problems, some doubts, some reservations in London. Because, um, uh, you know, uh, attracting Italy too blatantly on the French and British side uh, might have spurred a German reaction. So um, it, it was certainly the, the fact that the French and the Italians were not uh, at lo, uh, in, in a stronger, you know, sort of uh, colliding uh, uh, course uh, was good news for the British. But again, that was not sufficient for them to uh, work actively to produce a proper formal um, shift in alliances until the war came. Who were Sir Renel Rod and Marchese Imperiale, and why were they important in Anglo-Italian relations in this period? Yeah, well, um, the uh, the first one you mentioned, um, Rod, was the British ambassador in Rome. 
um, and uh, Imperiali was the Italian ambassador um, in London. And the reason why they are, they are very important uh, is that uh, they were at the front, uh, at the forefront of all the negotiations and the uh, talks and the discussions about first uh, the manage well, of course, the management of Anglo-Italian relations, but more importantly, as the war approached, first they were the protagonists of all the secret talks that brought Italy into the Entente, and secondly, uh, they were the protagonists of uh, all the negotiations that occurred during the war. So they, they, they participated and tried to shape the politics uh, of their uh, respective governments and tried to bridge differences and explain you know, the situation um, during the, the, 2006, uh, the, sorry, the 1916 um, talks um, and, uh, um, and, uh, and particularly the 1917 talks that would lead to the uh, Saint-Jean-de-Maurien uh, Treaty of April um, and 1917. Um, and, uh, and the reason why they played uh, an important role was not merely that they were, of course, the ambassadors, uh, but that they were a, pro, a, a pro-Italian British ambassador and a pro-British uh, Italian, um, uh, Britain-Italian ambassador. So they had a very special relationship with at least part of the leading class of the country where they were hosted. And, and, and so they were in a, in a special position to influence uh, as much as they could the behavior of the respective foreign ministries. Why did Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Secretary, reject Rod's uh, urging uh, that Grey work on Italy's joining the Entente in 1911-1912? Yeah, essentially for the reason that I mentioned earlier on. Um, uh, Grey was, uh, of course, interested in maintaining strong relations with the Italians, um, it was also considered pro-Italian uh, by some Italian diplomats. I, I, I find that statement a bit um, exaggerated, but certainly was a, a, a man who saw Italy in a different light uh, compared to Salisbury or other uh, British statesmen who had essentially regarded Italy as, yes, uh, an interesting part, partner, a commercial partner, but nothing really more than that. Um, by, by 1911, when Italy invaded uh, modern-day Libya, and took it, you know, at that point, uh, Italy became a significant factor in the central Mediterranean. The new Italian colony bordered onto uh, Egypt. So for the British, that was, you know, an entirely different geostrategic situation. And in fact, Gray protested vehemently when the Italians attacked uh, the Ottoman Empire. Um, but nonetheless, he, he, he wanted to keep a good rapport with, with, with them. But again, because of the complicated network of uh, the, you know uh, understandings that were in place between Italy and France and France and and and, and Great Britain and uh, the, the British also didn't want to you know to 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 fall out with the Ottomans um, too too much either and also there was always the same problem you know the Germans what would the Germans say what would they do if we kind of break their their alliance by attracting one of the members the only Mediterranean member that they actually had into our orbit now Rod was making this suggestion because by that moment you know there was already a kind of a cold war between Germany and Great Britain and the German naval rearmament was probably the thing that alarmed the British uh, the most and how how do you reduce that that danger uh, if you can attract their only Mediterranean partner into our orbit and make it uh, our ally? Uh, there's no way they can match us at sea, even if they uh, 
pursue their naval rearmament. Um, and that was the directional of, of, of Rod. Uh, but again, I think Gray was was right in, in rejecting that, that, that suggestion because such a massive in, intrusion into uh, into the, the, the other block uh, was almost was going to be received, almost certainly going going to be received very, very badly by the Germans. On page 42, you state, quote, Italy really belonged to the bloc of the Western powers, unquote. Did that uh, so-called bloc include Tsarist Russia? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, in fact, I, did, I, I didn't say the Entente, I said the Western powers. And that was a question of, you know, the liberal institutions that Italy had, which were extremely similar to those of, of Great Britain. Um, and the cultural tradition that, of course, linked um, uh, Italy with France. Now, the role of Russia is interesting, however, because with the Russians, the Italians had signed a, a, a secret treaty at the Reconigi, um, which essentially stated that um, if the Austrians expanded further into the Balkans, we should remember that in 1909, the Austrians had annexed Bosnia without giving Italy any compensation for that, uh, as was, you know, theoretically uh, part of the uh, Triple Alliance Treaty. Uh, the Austrians refused to do that, and and and, and the Italians then uh, made this this uh, agreement with the Russians that any further move of the Austrians in the Balkans would would have been deterred uh, by the Italians and the Russians together. So you see already here, although Italy was again uh, was part of the of the central of the of the bloc of the Central Powers, but it, it was establishing some separate unilateral and secret understandings with both France, as we mentioned, and now Russia. Uh, and of course, so London as, you know, the best friend, if you want to put it that way. So you really see Italy kind of uh, slowly moving away from the, the German bloc, uh, primarily because of the the, the, the old enmity, enmity with the traditional, you know, enemy of Italy, which was seen, you know, as Austria, of course. Was the unprovoked Italian uh, attack on the Ottoman Empire in 1911 an example of Italian commitment to, quote, international law, unquote? Um, to, to quote, to, can you repeat the, the quote? Uh, was the unprovoked attack on the Ottoman Empire in 1911 by Italy an example of what you refer to as Italian commitment to international law? Uh, well, that attack was um, unjustified in the sense that uh, the Ottomans didn't uh, didn't attack first, didn't do anything to you know to provoke the Italians, um, and that's actually a, a, a sign of how the Italian uh, Italian foreign policy was changing in the years immediately leading to the First World War. Uh, they had been traditionally very careful at maintaining the European concert, uh, as they called it, the European balance of power. Uh, and in fact, quite curiously, Imperiali, uh, the, the same man who was by now uh, the ambassador uh, in London, had been an ambassador to Constantinople a few years earlier. And his task there was to precisely to preserve the balance of power, maintain a good understanding with the Turks and, uh, and uh, do uh, everything that was possible um, to prevent uh, any any sort of crisis that might, you know, cause any troubles to that empire, which everyone was seeing already as an empire that was crumbling somehow. So uh, up until that moment, um, yes, Italy, Italy had been 
very careful of maintaining the international order and respecting the international agreements and so on. But at the same time, there was a pressing um, um, uh, environment on, on the Italian government to both avenge the humiliation suffered in, in Ethiopia when Italy was defeated in the colonial war uh, in, uh, in, in 1896, uh, and, and, and also to find new land for Italian, uh, for, for Italian immigrants. Um, and, 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 and essentially, in fact, I think uh, an argument might, might, might be made that uh, the Italian assault, the Italian attack on, on the Ottoman Empire was the real, the real stark of the First World War because it ignited uh, a, 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 a crisis that triggered the, the Balkan Wars, which, of course, had a consequence uh, in the uh, Sarajevo assassination and everything that follows. So by that point, uh, so, so from that point of view, uh, you're quite correct in, in, under, in underlining that Italy uh, was not really anymore in line with the, uh, the, the idea of a European concept. You're right that Rome's declaration of neutrality on the 2nd of August 1914, quote, encouraged London to issue its own ultimatum to Berlin over Belgium, unquote. Given the fact that the voluminous literature on the July crisis uh, this particular hypothesis is not mentioned once. What empirical evidence do you have that London was influenced in the way that you suggest? Um, well, you know, Rod um, was, uh, again, uh, extremely active in uh, promoting the, uh, the idea that uh, with, with Italy um, remaining neutral, um, the, uh, the, 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 the Germans could not win the war. And uh, Barrère, who was the French ambassador to um, to Rome, uh, did the same thing uh, in, in in Paris. And he actually wrote in his memoirs that uh, not Italian intervention, um, but the Italian declaration of neutrality uh, allowed the Germ the uh, French to transfer more than three hundred thousand uh, men who were deployed along the the Alps, so who, who were essentially guarding the southern borders. Uh, north um, uh, to engage the, the Germans on, uh, along the Marne River, uh, which of course had a massive impact militarily on the uh, failure of the uh, Blitzkrieg, as it's so-called, you know, Blitzkrieg. Um, so, so from Rome, you had both the French and the British um, uh, diplomats uh, and the, the, the British military mission as well, uh, highlighting how important that was militarily how important militarily it was to to the fact that Italy was not joining uh, its uh, formal allies and uh, and diplomatically as well uh, you know because this was also a question of legitimacy uh, the fact that one of the three allies did not share uh, the perception of the Austrians and the Germans that they were fighting a defensive war and that they they had been provoked and so on um, was a diplomatic score for the uh, the Entente even before. Uh, Italy actively joined them in the war. How important to Italian policy in this period was the succession of Sidney Sonino uh, to uh, from uh, San Giuliano as foreign minister in the fall of 1914? Right, well, that's an interesting question. Um, so Sonino was uh, <laughs> another character who has been um, portrayed uh, pretty badly, he had a very bad press uh, over the, over the over the years. Um, uh, Richard Bosworth called him the worst ever Italian foreign minister. Uh, now, um, 
I, I partly agree, but partly disagree with that with that statement in the sense that he made massive mistakes. He made huge mistakes, and uh, anyone reading the book will will find that out. Um, but at the same time, uh, quite interestingly, he was the only foreign minister in the countries that participated in the war in the early stages um, that remained in its post um, uh, on its post for the duration of the war. So um, if you survive that long, you know, um, uh, despite the stresses that, uh, the, that the development of the war uh, inevitably bring about uh, onto both the political system and onto your personal reputation as a foreign minister, if you survive that long, you can't really be the, you know, the worst ever. You can't be so bad. Um, and, and this brings me to, to, to answer your question more directly. So why was, was it important? Because by, by getting in, by, by getting Sonino as a foreign minister, the Italians uh, found someone who was extremely determined extremely strong as a political figure and uh, who, who was capable of giving the Italian foreign policy, which was traditionally fluctuating, uh, a, uh, a, a single, unique, clear direction. And in fact, interestingly enough, although he was not appreciated either in Paris or in London, but when it came to changing the Italian ministries, when the Italians changed their war cabinets, which happened three times during the war, any time, any time the British um, made it clear that they wished Sonino to stay um, because Sonino was a guarantee of uh, a, a clear direction in, the, in, in Italian foreign, foreign policy, which meant uh, that at that point that the Italians remained in, in, in the Entente. Um, so uh, from, from that point of view, it was, uh, it was um, uh, important. From another point of view, uh, from the point of view of Sonino's personal achievement, it was a double-edged sword. But uh, in terms of, you know, theoretical achievements, on paper, he got something very substantial in, in 1917. Uh, now, he didn't, didn't manage to get what, what he was promised uh, uh, in Paris. Uh, but uh, in, in 1917, if you look at the results of the colonial talks, um, his achievement is actually quite remarkable. What for you were the, or uh, what was the key variable uh, as to why Italy joined the Entente side in the war in the spring of 1915? Well, that's a, that's a, that has to be understood uh, in, 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 in a variety of ways. There are, there are several factors. Uh, of course, you know, the traditional enmity with Austria, which uh, I have already mentioned, you know, the, the desire to acquire those territories which were inhabited primarily by Italians, but were still under Austrian control, um, uh, a, a sheer desire of, you know, um, imperial expansion, uh, which has not always been appreciated by Italian historians, but I think, I think um, which is why I called the book Empires, you know, Forging Empires, um, Italy was, in fact, trying to forge its own empire in emulation of, you know, uh, ancient Rome, of course. Uh, and so that also played an important part. And then, uh, as, 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 I, as I said, um, and uh, it, it was essentially a decision uh, motivated by uh, two considerations. So, so who's your best friend and who's your, be your, your worst enemy? <laughs> and, and Italy had two good friends, uh, London and, and Berlin. And two kind of enemies, you know, uh, Paris and, and Vienna. So 
um, at the end of the day, what turned out to be uh, the, the final decision was that London was more important as a friend than Berlin, and, and France was less uh, less traditional, uh, less uh, of an enemy than 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 than, than Vienna. Um, but but again, because it came to that, that point, um, I, I, I go back to my previous point that uh, Italy inevitably would have to join the war at some some point. Uh, of course, you know the the the, the principle of inevitability or the concept of inevitability when applied to history it's of course you know it's questionable uh, but uh, i think a case can be made that it was almost let's put it that way it was almost inevitable that italy would join one side or, or, or the other for economic reasons because italy by that point was suffering from a double blockade it was suffering from the blockade of Gibraltar, so a British blockade in the Western Mediterranean, and from the blockade of the of the Straits in in, uh, in in the East by the Turks, and that problem affected hugely the Italian economy, uh, because through the Straits Italy would get uh, grain supplies, and through uh, uh, the Western Mediterranean it would get uh, raw materials and wheat and so on, so. Uh, Italy could simply not afford uh, uh, to, to, to stay neutral uh, if that meant uh, the impossibility to trade with both coalitions. And in that regard, the, the British blackmail proved very successful. Uh, the economic warfare that indirectly Britain was using as a diplomatic tool to force the hand of the neutral countries, not just Italy, but also Spain and Portugal, um, uh, was 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 very important because uh, the the Turks closed the Dardanelles, uh, and uh, of course Italy needed to either you know have access to to, to that uh, area of 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 Europe uh, or to, to to the western one, and of course you know the connection the, the the commercial connections with Western Europe was both more important and um, and uh, and. Um, uh, and the fact that the British were not happy to indulge um, on, 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 that, on that regard uh, was, was actually an important stimulus. Um, the, the, the Italians uh, simply had to choose w where they wanted to trade, but they simply could not remain without the possibility to trade with, with, with both, with both uh, uh, coalitions. Uh, and that is uh, evidenced by uh, a significant economic crisis that hit the country in the winter of 14-15. Uh, there were riots, uh, there were protests uh, in the streets, uh, uh, there were fights between the Carabinieri, so the, the, the Gendarmerie, and, uh, and the peasantry. So the situation was getting, you know, very serious. Uh, and so I think this aspect, the economic warfare, uh, was 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 important and has been traditionally little appreciated. And finally, you know, the, the other fascinating point is that Italy was essentially turned into a battlefield of espionage uh, and propaganda uh, between between pro entant uh, agents and pro Germany uh, agents uh, and, and 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 so on. So all you know, uh, all these elements, of course, played a role. Uh, would you agree with Dennis Max Smith, among others? that the anti-democratic means by which Italy entered the Great War in the spring of 1915 was a forerunner of Mussolini's seizure of power in 1922. Um, yes, yes. Um, that, yeah, put it that way, it's 
maybe a bit extreme because again it's about inevitabilities but certainly um, the fact that uh, the interventionist wing was spearheaded by mad dogs who used daggers to terrify all the enemies of the intervention um, and actually you know the, the squads that would take power in Rome in 1922 uh, began to, to, to go around to, to form to be established and to be active in Italian politics in um, in 1915. So in, in, in that regard, I, I, I do agree. Um, some Italian authors uh, actually called that period a low-intensity civil war. Now, again, that's a bit extreme, uh, but that gives you the idea of how extreme the confrontation in Italian squares um, and in Italian politics was becoming by then, yes. Why did Italy wait until 1916 to declare war on Germany? Because it was not prepared. Um, Italy was an aspiring great power, but was not yet a great power. Uh, and for uh, engaging in, in a world war uh, of the kind, you know, that the, Fran the, the, the French and the British were, uh, you know, engaged uh, into, um, for doing that, it, Italy needed a much stronger mobilization. Um, so uh, uh, Italy had joined the war uh, on the premises that, uh, you know, the big slogan was, uh, Trento and Trieste. So let's take back those Italian cities in in, in the hands of 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 the of the Austrians. Uh, and in that regard, uh, Italy saw its participation in the First World War uh, kind of as 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 a personal affair with Austria. You know, it was the, uh, the 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 final confrontation with the traditional enemy. Uh, now, Germany was much more important and influential in Italy uh, because, you know, Prussia and Italy had been allied previously and because Germany had acquired many newspapers, banks, companies. There was a huge level of investment, not as huge as the British one, but still Germany was part of number two. And so and so um, there were there, there were sectors of the Italian business, uh, parts of the Italian business sector, uh, which were pressing the government not to break entirely with the Germans. And then, as I said, it was a question of, you know, preparedness. So the, the Italian army had not fortified the border with Switzerland, uh, which was a neutral country, uh, and felt that uh, before declaring war to Germany, which had showed that uh, it was very well prepared to invade neutral countries, um, they needed to fortify that border. Uh, and in the meantime, they hoped that, uh, that they could get to Vienna. You know, uh, this was uh, conceived as almost a triumphant march onto Vienna. So they thought that we, if we break the Austrians soon enough, we don't even need to get to war with 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 the uh, with the Germans. And in that regard, why should we disperse our forces to fortify the Swiss border if we can concentrate them on in the east and get to Vienna? You know, so uh, in in that sense. Uh, when they realized that they would not get to Vienna anytime soon, at that point, uh, they they decided that, uh, and of course the British were in the forefront of a diplomatic uh, the diplomatic battle on this. Um, yeah, but at that point, they realized that uh, okay, we 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 are in a world war. We need to take part, you know, as a full member of the alliance, especially because otherwise, if we don't do it, they might not give us everything that they had promised on the end of the war. How, if at all, did uh, Italy coordinate, or not, its military efforts with the other Entente powers? Um, that's a chiaroscuro, you know, that's a mixed story. Um, and the interesting part of it is that, um, on paper, everyone repeated <laughs> that uh, better coordination was badly needed. 
Cadorna, the, 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 the Italian uh, chief of staff, repeated that. Um, uh, the the, the uh, Joffre, so the, the French chief of staff, said pretty much the same thing. Uh, Haig said the same thing. Uh, Robertson as well. You know, everyone was repeating that. Uh, Lloyd George, particularly when he came to power, was extremely determined to bring that about. Uh, but then when it came to uh, we coordinate to do what? The individual differing priorities of the of, of the kind of the uh, intended countries that resurfaced and especially the fact that the French and the British um, had Germany as their main enemy as their main opponent uh, and as I said uh, Italy declared war on Germany because it was in the entente but uh, had uh, Austria-Hungary as its main enemy so um, so the, the, the Italians when, when they called for better coordination. It was essentially, you know, let's put pressure onto Serbia to do more, let's let's break Austria, uh, and, and so on. Let's, uh, you know, cooperate in the Mediterranean. And, of course, when the French and the British uh, spoke about coordination, uh, they were like, okay, you join us in the war on Germany and we break Germany first because we, we break, you know, the, the Napoleonic methods of breaking the principal mass of the enemy, you know. Um, and then there was also something more prickly here, because uh, although, again, on paper, everyone was looking for better coordination, then, you know, uh, Cadorna was not entirely happy. Well, Sonino certainly was not happy to have a massive support uh, by the Allies, um, because, you know, diplomatically and politically, having such a big support on your own front, uh, it was not something that you want to sell um, to either your public or, in fact, to your your allies, because they, they they will always tell you, okay, you didn't win because you won, but you won because we came and we did, you know, uh, our, our part. So there was also, you know, this this calls for coordination were kind of always half-hearted in that sense. How did the British react to Italian efforts to revive the Sykes Pico Treaty? Um, um, again, it's a Mixed story. Uh, in part, they were very worried about the increased uh, um, uh, uh, na- nature of the, of the Italian claims, the, the, the increased amount of, of, of colonial demands. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the fact that the Sykes-Picot Treaty might be revised uh, was in- interesting for them because by the time these discussions were taking place, which is 1917, um, the British had made significant advances in the colonial theater, especially uh, into into Palestine, and were approaching uh, Syria. We're just about to to, to get into Syria, uh, and of course the French wanted Syria. And at the same time, as these advances took place, uh, an environment was was being created, was being established um, in in London, uh, where where you know some imperialists. That joined Lloyd George in the War Cabinet uh, were not quite happy to restore the territories that Britain was conquering um, uh, during the war, as opposed to Grace and Asquith's uh, assumption that anything that was uh, that Britain was taking would be restored because you know the British were uninterested in expanding their empire further and wanted simply you know to restore the balance of power in Europe. By the time Lloyd George came to power, uh, that uh, that idea was kind of crumbling and it was put aside pretty soon. Um, and and because the the British were expanding their own ambitions, 
the fact that they they could revise the size pico uh, agreement with with the french and reduce french claims because of that was a very interesting perspective um that played out partially uh, because of course the French vetoed any significant revision, um, but nonetheless they 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 brought the Italians into the picture and well they allowed the Italians into the picture and that per se counterbalanced the French in Anatolia, for example. How did the debacle at Caporetto in October 1917 impact on it- Anglo-Italian relations? Yeah, that's another interesting question. Uh, it impacted very much for for uh, for for a number of reasons. Um, number one, um, the, the British had so far concentrated on trying to expand the Italian participation in the war. As you mentioned very correctly, Italy did not join the Allies in the war on Germany until the summer of 1916, uh, when they achieved a significant victory against, against the Austrians and felt uh, strong enough to do that. Uh, so the British had been pressing the Italians and also blackmailing the Italians with, uh, you know, putting, you know, financial uh, support uh, on ice, uh, you know, um, uh, for 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 a year. Uh, and um, and and so until Caporetto, the, the the problem for the British was to really have the Italians uh, as a more active and efficient um, participant in the war. After Caporetto, the problem was to keep Italy in the war. Uh, so, um, so the, the priority changed dramatically. And, uh, uh, and again, the, 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 the British were probably the, the main, the main, um, supporter, uh, of, of an Italian recovery, both economically and, uh, and, uh, and also militarily. Uh, they were, they were important. Uh, and, and at the same time, Caporetto gave the British uh, an awareness of, you know, how the Italians needed help. And so how, you know, the Italian posture as Italy's posture as a great power was kind of kind of a uh, of, of uh, not, not really a true a truth. Um, and um, kind of the diplomatic, kind of a diplomatic stance, uh, more than anything else, more than more than a military, more than a reflection of a military um, uh, strength. Uh, but um, but at the same time, it also gave the British uh, the perfect excuse to gain some control over their Italian allies, because Italy had been, as I said, very reluctant to join the British in a number of. Uh, instances, a number of things uh, and matters, and so now because the you know the relevance of Italy in the Entente and also their you know sheer need for help uh, made uh, put Italy in a much vulnerable position. Uh, the British um, you know were in a, in a sense con- once the emergency was over, so it was clear that Italy was not going to defect. Okay, at that point the British exploited the fact that the Italians were politically much weaker now. And that helped them establish, you know, the Supreme War Council and unify uh, allied strategy much better than Iferto. Why do you claim that the victory at Vittorio Veneto was mostly an Italian as opposed to a British or allied victory? Well, it's a matter of, you know, it's a pure matter of numbers. Uh, you know, the, 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 by, the, by the time um, in late 1918 when the offensive started, by that time, the troops, the Allied troops, so the British, uh, American, and French troops in Italy, 
uh, were very weak. They're just just a few a few divisions and only one regiment of the Americans. Uh, so uh, that offensive saw some 50 Italian divisions uh, against five of uh, uh, the Czechoslovakians, uh, uh, the British and the French, plus, again, an American regiment. Uh, so in terms of numbers, uh, it was like almost entirely the Italians who fought the battle. Now, the importance of the Allies in that battle was not so much um, that they participated with their, their troops, but that they had helped the Italian army recover. They, they had uh, resupplied the Italian army. They had uh, supported the, the, the Italian industrial reconstruction of, of, the, of the war machine. And they had uh, also helped in restoring morale. So um, uh, those are important, significant contributions. Uh, but one cannot say that it was a British victory because they had a couple of divisions, you know. How did Anglo-Italian relations evolve in the period after the armistice in November 1918? Yeah, that was really the climax of their bilateral relationship. Because, and again, interestingly, there is a major misunderstanding here between the, the Italians and the British because the Italians kept thinking, counting. They kept thinking that the British were actually their main partner, and they they, they kept counting on them to counterbalance both the revisionist. Uh, ideas of President Wilson, so of the Americans, and uh, the uh, the the and the French, uh, who were of course you know the old competitor uh, of of the Italians in the Western Mediterranean uh, and North Africa by this point, uh, with with Tunisia bordering on Libya, uh, and uh, and they kept counting on that. Uh, remarkably, despite the fact that uh, even before the the Paris Peace Conference, the British had made it very clear that they considered all the colonial treaties so far signed. Uh, to be lapsed, um, and, and 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 again, this is you know maybe the, the Italians has always been considered you know Machiavellian, so very you know uh, cynic and uh, and determined uh, in in getting what they wanted and so on, uh, very stubborn and so on. Uh, I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, I, I found the behavior of the Italian statesmen at the conference to be extremely naive. Uh, they weren't able to uh, to revise their own uh, expectations. They weren't able to uh, read uh, developments and, and events, uh, you know, with the necessary detachment to actually grasp what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, they weren't able to change paradigm. They weren't able to build up alternative partnerships. Uh, with, with with other members of the Allies, they kept counting that London would not just mediate between um, the the uh, the Allies, but actively support Italian claims, although by that point, as I said, the, the colonial claims of Italy had expanded significantly to the point of threatening British um, primacy uh, and interests both in the Mediterranean and in the Red Sea. So um, in, that, in that regard, the, the, the British you know, were, were super happy that, uh, that the Americans were vetoing uh, most of the Italian um, demands uh, because because that put the British in a, in a, in a, in a perfect position. They asked, sorry guys, it's not our fault. Yes, we would give you everything that has been promised, but you know, it's not us, it's the Americans. Uh, and on the other hand, the Italians were completely unable to grasp this. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Um, maybe a couple of things, very, very briefly. One, one is that we, we need more and more comparative history. Uh, we, we, we need to address, I can't stress more uh, how important it is to address sources in the original language. 
Um, so um, uh, a, a suggestion I might make is that if you want to write about Italy, learn Italian. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's not an easy language, um, but it's a, it's not a, an extremely complicated one either, uh, and so it's a it's a nice language to 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 learn. But of course, the same point could be made uh, made about Russian uh, or Turkish. You know, all those languages that are important if you really want to grasp what was going on in those countries, uh, even if uh, you write it from a, you write about them from a, a Western perspective. You know, we have Western historians and scholars writing about Russia or Turkey, the Ottoman Empire and the First World War. I'm not sure how many documents they were actually able to, you know, grasp or even secondary literature. You know, so l learning languages is very important. Unfortunately, now we have a new generation uh, of, 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 of historians um, that, uh, that are much more keen on that. Um, a second point is, is about strategy and the reality gap, I think, you know, um, because there is a tendency to see uh, uh, some combatants in, in, in the First World War uh, as being fairly good operationally, but inconsistent strategically. The Germans are an obvious case um, in point here. Uh, but sometimes it, it it was the other way around, and, and the Allies are a case in point here. You know, even when they got a strategy uh, correct, broadly, broadly speaking, they continued to face insurmountable odds uh, at the operational and tactical levels. And now you you might say that this is an indication that the strategy itself was not sufficiently conceptualized or thought through but in some cases it's also a, 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 a mean it is also a consequence of you know of the fog of war the impact of the unpredictable you know uh, no matter how good planning uh, you, you you make even assuming that you have all the good intelligence that so you calculate and you include everything all the variables in in your plan so you do a very good planning and then still you know the things develop develop differently uh, and sometimes there is nobody to re really to blame for that you know in the mediterranean the british tended to shoulder responsibilities uh, responsibility for the frustrating development uh, in the naval war onto the italians and vice versa the italians blamed the british but in fact you know sometimes it's not it's not that it's it's a, it's a matter of sheer luck or or bad luck so that's Philosophically, if you will, uh, it, it's probably the most, most important lesson that the study of military history teaches us. You know, not everything is under our control. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Marcuzzi, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thank, thank you very much, you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you once again, Dr. Marcuzzi. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.